This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Hello, and welcome to the Shakti Hour, a podcast on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network, where I speak with women about their personal experience on the spiritual path. My name is Melanie, and I'm happy to be here with you uh, just following this full moon lunar eclipse weekend. I hope you all um, got to see the beautiful moon and were able to take in some of the transformative and revealing power of the moon's energy over the weekend. Um, we're towards the end of July here and uh, at the end of the second book in the Shakti Summer Reading Series, we started off with Lama Siltram's book, Wisdom Rising, moved into Tammy Lynn Kent's two books, Wild Creative and Wild Feminine, and next month, we'll have Roshi Joan Halifax and her book, Standing at the Edge. So go ahead and follow along at the Shakti Hour podcast, Instagram, or on the Shakti Hour page at Facebook, and also Shakti Hour on Twitter. Uh, today, I am sharing with you a conversation with the brilliant Mirabai Bush, and she has a new book coming out with Ram Dass in September called uh, Walking Each Other Home. And it is so special. It's a beautiful conversational book with uh, two great friends, Mirabai and Ram Dass, speaking about transition into death and transition in general. And I highly recommend you check that out when it comes out. This conversation uh, with Mirabai is super cool. I was really happy to have time to talk with her and just get to hear her story about, you know, how she came to spirituality, how she met Ramdas, what it was like traveling across the Middle East to India and sitting in Bodh Gaya and when she first encountered Neem Karoli Baba. So I really hope you'll uh, take some time to listen to this chat and learn more about Mirabai's story and look forward to their book coming out in about a month. And we may speak again uh, in December more in depth about the book because we got a bit carried away just talking about some good stories and some good experiences. So we didn't get too much into their book. So we may get a chance to speak again about that later. I also wanted to let you know that coming up this fall, I'm offering a special Shakti Sacred Music series that I'm super excited about. And we are recording and producing those episodes over the next month, and they'll be coming out in October and November. And uh, if you want to follow along and support that podcast series, you can go to uh, my Patreon page, Patreon slash Shakti Hour, and become a patron from anywhere from a one-time donation to $2 all the way up to $25 or more if you want to sign on and get some special rewards and lead-ins to this sacred music series that's coming out and other reflections and meditations that I'm offering there for subscribers. 
So please do remember to also subscribe to the Shakti Hour on iTunes and go to the BeHereNowNetwork.com and check out all the other amazing podcasts and offerings there and get caught up on all your Shakti Hour episodes over the summer months. And please enjoy this wonderful chat with the beautiful Mirabai Bush. Thanks so much for listening. So I wanted to just, um, I know that a lot of the, the satsang knows a bit of your story, but just for the Shakti Hour, I'd love if you would share with me and the listeners a little bit about, you know, how you came to your practice, how you came to spirituality, what happened for you, how you got here. Good question. And... Um, I'll try to give it a short answer. <laughs> it was a long process. Um, I um, I grew up as a Catholic girl. Went to church every Sunday, and was I was in Catholic school from preschool through Georgetown Graduate School, where I studied medieval literature. Um, and uh, I was I felt like you know, I found um, my answers that way. And um, we, one of the ways that um, Catholic children were educated then was with the stories of the saints. And um, so I always wanted to be a saint. (laughs) I just thought, because there were women who were saints, there weren't you know, in the Catholic Church, all the priests were men, and pretty much everybody with any kind of significance or power was a man. But um, in all the universities and so on. But um, but there were saints who who were women, and mostly um, they were they'd done all forms of sacrifice, <laughs> which was um, something that women were supposed to do in those years. But um, there were also women who did extraordinary things, and my favorite was Joan of Arc. And I love Joan of Arc because she, not because she saved France or wore, you know, a military uniform, but, and rode horses, but um, because she could hear, I always wanted to know what it was I was supposed to be doing on, in this, on this earth. So I yearning to know that. And um, Joan of Arc heard these voices in her head from God um, that told her what to do. And then she just did whatever those voices said. And she knew those voices were the truth. They weren't like crazy voices telling her to do weird things. She could tell that that was the truth. She believed it was from God. And he told her, it was a he, I'm sure, um, to um, save France. And so she was this young girl. And... Um, she did. She organized the French and the French army and saved France. So, and then of course she was uh, she was a young woman, and there was tremendous resistance to her having this role. And they found a way to uh, convict her of a capital offense, which it turned out Joan of Arc was actually burned at the stake for wearing men's clothes. That was what was on the books. Hmm. Uh, I gotta find a real, gotta find something they can put there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So anyhow, I, I love that she did. She, she heard what she was supposed to do and she gave herself full heartedly to it. And it was a spiritual um, uh, direction. Um, So anyhow, things happened. I, and early after, um, I graduated from college. I got married to a person who'd been my boyfriend in college and the person I thought I should marry. He was kind of fit what I thought my family would want me to marry and so on. And I did. And um, the he was in those years, men were in ROTC and they, when he graduated as an officer, uh, he had a two year uh, commitment and they sent him to Cape Canaveral because he was an aeronautical engineer and I went with him. And there, I, women weren't allowed to work. I walked, I had nothing to do. And I walked by the beach 
all day, every day. And just my, it was, it was the sixties by this time. And I was beginning to question in a different way. I was beginning to see interconnections. Um, maybe because I'd never really had that much quiet time for myself ever. Um, anyhow, although I worked as it turned out and, and was the first woman to work on Cape Canaveral, first professional woman to work on Cape Canaveral. I, got, I was the first woman to be issued a hard hat and a jumpsuit and they built a bathroom for me. But it was the Saturn Apollo, the first moon launch. But even that wasn't really enough. And so I decided that I would leave him and I did. And then, and I went back to graduate school, but, and got divorced. And in those years, um, as a Catholic, I was, um, basically, I was excommunicated. And uh, Worse than that, Joan of Arc, worse than, worse than the... Yeah, it was like being burned at stake, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so that, I mean, it was hard for me to get, but at the same time, it created this big open space for inquiry and discovery. And through those years, so I was in graduate school from 67 to 70, and those were times of huge change. And um, while I was there, you know, and I was studying literature and poetry, and there were um, amazing um, people would visit the campus, and, and they included like Gary Snyder and Allen Ginsberg and people like that. And um, I started um, doing psychedelics in the last year I was there. I was very involved in anti-war work and civil rights work. I was the head of a program for uh, entering uh, African-American students who were coming really to the university for the first time uh, after Martin Luther King was killed. So I, all kinds of things were like changing and moving in me. And by 1970, I felt like it was really hard to find a, a sane way of living. The, the anti-war movement had created all kinds of chaos on campus and the police had taken over the campus as they did at many schools. And um, it was really difficult to teach. And I just felt like, I wanted to find out if there, if there was anybody living on the planet who knew a better way of a better, a more integrated life and a more peaceful life than we were able to live there. So hmm. uh, with my then partner, John Bush, we traveled, um, we traveled across um, Europe and the Middle East and through through the former Yugoslavia and Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. And all along the way, people were so good to us. It was a peaceful time in all those countries. Hmm. And um, uh, people just took care of us and took us to their mosques and their temples and um, fed us. And uh, I was beginning to I was beginning to see that there were ways of living that made more sense to me. And I was opening and appreciating all these different ways of, of being with integrating spiritual awareness into um, daily life. And, um, and then we got to India and uh, I, the first day I was in India, I met, uh, Sharon Salzberg. Uh, we, we'd been at the same school, but we hadn't known each other there. But we mm -hmm. met each other on the street in Delhi. And uh, she told Did me Did you that, recognize her? Did you recognize Yeah, well, you know, in those years, there were very few Westerners around. Right. So when we saw each other, we knew there was some connection. Right. And then as soon as we um, mm -hmm. started talking, we realized there was a lot of connection. Mm -hmm. um, and she told me that there was a meditation course being offered for Westerners 
uh, for the first time hmm. by um, uh, by Galanka, Burmese uh, Buddhist teacher, and he was teaching in Bogaya where the Buddha had been enlightened, and uh, in an old monastery there, and um, that I could go, and um, you know I had never meditated, I had never done anything like that, and I wasn't. Um, you know, I, I just thought, well, I'm in India. Seems like might as well learn to meditate. <laughs> so went there with no expectation and no experience. With and, none other than Sharon Salzberg, right? Who, who yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I got there and there were, I can't remember now. I think there were maybe 50 or 70 of us. And... Um, that all these people had heard in kind of similar ways, you know, the word had just traveled. And uh, I, as I was, as I was uh, just walking toward the monastery, it was called the Vihara, House of Stillness. And uh, outside, standing outside, um, were, was this person who, with a long beard and, um, and in all white clothes, like kind of floaty um, clothes. Uh, and I was drawn, and there were several other young guys around him. And I wondered what, they looked like they were talking about something very spiritual and important. And uh, so I, I went up to them, and it turned out it was Ram Dass. And he was talking, and I can't remember, but it was probably Ramesh and, and KD. And us, um, they were trying to decide how many cookies they should buy at the chai wala to take into the monastery because we knew that there wouldn't be anything sweet in there. And we were staying for 10 days. So it was my first experience around us. Um, and then, um, then we got there and we started, um, if you know about how Glanka used to run his retreats, they were for 10 days and you, you got up at five o'clock in the morning. They were all in silence. <clears throat> there were two meals and you basically started meditating and you meditated till 10 o'clock at night. And, um, with great instruction. So it wasn't, wasn't hard to stay there. Well, I would say on the Zafu, except that I had forgotten, but realized years later recently, I, someone came up, I think it was Joseph Goldstein, came up with old pictures from that time. And um, we were, of course, we all looked like hippies. We were, you know, we had long kind of uh, messy hair and, um, you know, kind of hippie clothes. And we were sitting on the floor, the room. I remembered it, the meditation hall, you know. I remembered it as, you know, pretty vast with Glenka on a little stage. But actually, it was really small. We looked like we were stuffed into somebody's living room. And we were all sitting on the floor, 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 and with our legs crossed, we were so close to each other that, um, I mean, I don't remember ever like touching any or leaning on anyone while we were sitting, but there must have just been like, you know, the, the width of a piece of paper between each one of us. Right. And there we sat for, um, often without moving. He'd do these hour-long without moving practices uh, for days and days. And um, we slept on the floor, basically, or if we had little mats. Sharon and I um, made a little, we, we hung up some saris and uh, made it kind of a little room out of a big open space. And uh, it was so simple and so wonderful. Um, just from the, it had never really occurred to me as an as a intellectual and a, and a uh, New Yorker and a <laughs> study, a, a person who was studying literature, the great minds of the past and present, it never occurred to me to look into my own mind and that I would actually learn from that. I mean, I appreciated the workings of my intellectual mind and enjoyed that, but uh, that I could understand the nature of the mind 
by looking within and watching my breath and noticing the sensations in my body, it was really uh, changed everything. Um, and then, of course, he also taught us uh, metta loving kindness meditation that really, I had always had a pretty open heart, but I'd also had a broken heart many times and had had a lot of pain in my childhood. My father left and so on. And still pain from having gotten divorced in that first uh, marriage. And just the opening of the heart and the ease and acceptance with our judgment of ourselves and being with all these other people who were doing the same thing and you knew it, uh, I, it was radical for me. And at the end of the 10 days, um, we all kind of looked around, said, we don't want to stop. So, I mean, we were happy for a break, but we wanted to do more. Um, uh, and of course, some of the guys were convinced that they were going to become enlightened. So they want to do as much meditation as possible so they could get enlightened. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, so then we did another course and then another and another. I think, I forget how many we did. Some of the sitting we did was underneath the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya hmm. uh, where the Buddha had been enlightened. Now, of course, there's like a billion tourists around the tree at all times. But, right. Then there weren't any. I mean, there were some Japanese pilgrims, but, you know, hardly anybody. And uh, so that was the beginning of the next part of my spiritual journey. And, and as, as I said, um, uh, Ram Dass and KD and, and Ramesh were there also, and Danny Goldman. So a real core of those of us who, um, later met Maharaji. And then um, also a core of what became the Buddhist flourishing in this country, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, Wes Nisker, and others. Um, and of course, we all got very bonded with each other. And um, you know, I just love the, I mean, I, I love the way that you told that. That first part, I know there's a, I know there's a big second chapter to this yeah. here uh, we're about to jump into, but it's just, I love this, the ease of the flow. And I am sure in the experiencing of it, there was challenges and difficulties and struggles and feelings in depth, but really, you know, just um, if it was to be a painting, it's such a beautiful, uh, it's such a beautiful painting of this, this flow of kind of your, the seed of your being, you know, slowly kind of unraveling and, and going on this path. I mean, I've, I've had the pleasure now to talk to several of you that were on this journey and you so nonchalantly, you know, tell this tale of wandering across Europe in the Middle East <laughs> and landing in, in India as if, you know, now to, you know, nowadays that was, that would seem unfathomable to, you know, go on yeah. such a relaxed um, journey and that kind of the openness and the naivete of that exploration, um, you know, I don't know, fueled by what? I mean, to me, it's so obviously this, in these great souls kind of coming together and all deciding to like meet in Bodh Gaya for like a reunion, like a high five here. Oh, let's do this. <laughs> let's do this century. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I look back on it too, you know, it's pretty amazing. I mean, some people, Anasuya, who was with Maharaji, um, she... She was 19 when she went over there. <laughs> I, mean, I was, at least I had, had a little life experience, but naive was definitely part of it. Boy, I remember that. Um, so we just had our backpacks, you know, and whatever you could have. So I had a, I was wearing a patchwork skirt that I had made because we had, a, we, I didn't mention, but we had started a commune in British Columbia in between 
graduate school and, and, <laughs> yeah. and so there, you know, that we cooked over open fires and crocheted and <laughs> yeah. so I made myself this patchwork skirt and um and I wore it all across. And then I had um I must have had some jeans also, but uh and I had um oh and I had this one little dress that was made out of um something synthetic that wrote that uh rolled up into a little ball in the in the backpack and I used it my idea was that I would use it for going to embassies because I thought it made me look you know straight and, <laughs> and so I would um I'd wear it to embassies to get my visas for each country so um <laughs> so also we finally stopped you know we we had like two changes of clothes. We finally stopped. We were in Istanbul. And um, so I was getting my clothes washed and cleaned. And the only thing I had left was this little dress. And of course, this is the 60s, right? So late 60s. So it had a teeny mini skirt, you know. And um, I was much younger. <laughs> I could wear that mini skirt quite well in America. <laughs> this was Istanbul. And uh, so I was... I put on the dress and uh, then I went to get my shoes uh, fixed. I guess you could get new soles put on them then. And um, so I, w and the shoemaker was um, like most things in the, in a uh, bazaar in those kinds of countries, there's an open front, you know, it's like a storefront when it's all open. And um, so, and you sat in there while he worked on your shoes. I, as I remember, the shoes were still on my feet. I was sitting there uh, on this chair in this little miniskirt, and um, he started working. And before he finished, there were about 200 men had gathered around to watch. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Um, and the police had to come and escort me back to wherever we were staying. Um, wow. That was, that's how naive. And yet, I never, I was never, um, you know, in Turkey, men used to kind of like grab at you as you were walking past, but, and then they just keep on going. But I never, I was never in any danger with men uh, in the whole way across. I mean, I did have a boyfriend, but of course, lots of times I was by myself. And uh, it was, it was a different time. Yeah. I mean, some women did have things happen, but basically, considering two, you know, I don't know how many four months going going across, and and um, you know, two years in India, and nothing bad ever happened. No Me Too moment. Well, so can you tell me a little bit now about what your mind? You, you mentioned your exploration of your mind kind of as part of this journey, which is a really intriguing to me the way you said that. You, had, you enjoyed the intellectual exploration of your mind, but then through, this, through these sits, through this practice, you came to look at it a different way. Can, can you tell me about how that has evolved for you, like the, that understanding of your mind and... Mm -hmm. Well, the big discovery, as I'm sure you know, is that you are not your mind. I, my mind always worked well, like in graduate school, right? So um, it could make all these connections, and, um, and I always liked that. But what I discovered from sitting is that I am not that mind, I am, or I am not only that mind that there is, um, that I am awareness, that what I, what I discovered is that I could, there was some part of me that could watch that mind and watch it working. And, um, and that was not that mind, that there's um, awareness, which is the, say deeper part of who we are but it's bigger part of who we are but it is that 
part of who we are that is not limited in the ways that that the mind and body are and um just being able to rest in that awareness to notice my mind to be able to not judge what was going on in my mind um it I felt free in that. I felt free and I felt, um, at the same time, I felt more grounded and like I really was free to be a person on this planet, enjoying it, discovering what it is that I'm here to do, um, but not be so identified with that mind and my body that that I got caught in thinking that that's all there is. Um, yeah, you know, because that's something that I have um, really appreciated about the, uh, I've really appreciated about the being a part of this <laughs> community is that all the whole mind is, is held, that the whole thing gets to be held, that the intellect is not, abandoned and but that that just as you were saying that it, as you were ex describing your experience it brought me into that experience in my own being where it's a, like a balancing out you know it's like everything is contained in uh, the same amount of energetic spread through the whole <laughs> being whereas you know i think um you know, maybe the major misconception I'm sure you run into all the time about meditation is the shutting down of the mind. Yeah. Right? Of course. People this idea. ask me that. Yeah. How do you I mean, get your mind to stop? Exactly. So I guess I just was just, I mean, yeah. pulling out the word mind and the way that you were, you were describing your relationship with it. And then also back to the, to the, just even to the story of Joan of Arc and like, the mind, her mind receiving messages <laughs> and her, that intuitive, you know, hearing something and then, and, and putting it into form. I just, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm just sensing into the way you're telling the story. That's something that's standing out to me is the, especially, you know, from the, from the perspective of the, the, the feminine in this, in the empowerment of the mind, like being educated, you know, being educated and being educated in the um, <laughs> in the Catholic system, and this the icon is a is a woman who hears voices, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, and 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 that early part of your life, this subversion of self that you broke out of quickly, thank goodness, you know, continued to grow your mind. And then land in this foreign place to sit and have a whole new relationship with it, you know, to, I'm just, I'm just um, flowing through that with you. It's just such a cool uh, part, it feels like, of your story that that, that you were invested in in that part of yourself, you know, and in growing that part of yourself and that finding contemplative practice, finding meditation gave you even more freedom. Yeah. Yes. One thing I remember after being silent for so long, I mean, there were, there were like a day or two in between these courses. And of course we all were talking like crazy. And we all wanted to know about each other because we become intimate with each other by sitting in silence next to each other. But we didn't really know anything about each other's stories. And so we'd like be sharing like mad. And um, I remember Ram Dass, <laughs> Ram Dass was like, you've got to be in the moment. So he, was always, he would call us the used to be's because we were always talking about who we used to be. But, um, <laughs> but after, um, after all this time, I, uh, I thought, because I'd been so 
invested in language and ideas before that. Mm. Um, it was, I, I didn't, um, I said to Ramdas, you know, what do you, what do you say? How do you talk after being silent for so long? It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question. Yeah. And we've seen things in such a different way. And, and he said, it's easy. He said, you just say what you know, and you don't say what you don't know. And I thought, hmm, mm. I might never talk again. Because <laughs> I was so aware of the limitations of what I, I thought I knew, you know. Mm. But um, uh, that, that was a big part of, like, it's finally a search for the truth, right? And we want to, when we speak, we want to contribute to that. Mm. Um, and um, which was part of what was so wonderful about being with Maharaji was that, as you know, he spoke very little and mm. he would just say these simple things that we could then keep like deconstructing over and over again through these 45 years of like <laughs> what does it really mean to love everyone, hmm. serve everyone, you know, always tell the truth? Um, hmm. Yeah. So. I love this also that, so you sat in, in Bodh Gaya for many weeks before you. Yeah. Met and me, that was really important because yeah. well, what happened was, Ram, this was Ramdas's second trip to India. And in between the two trips was when he wrote Be Here Now. And it came out while we were there. Mm -hmm. And one copy was sent to the monastery. And uh, it was mm -hmm. when it was still in a box. And um, pretty much, I mean, I was one of the last people to get to see it. And because um, there were people who had there who had known Ramdas and before going to India and so on. So I was kind of um, not that important in the hierarchy. So um, I, so we're, we were, a group of us left on a bus. You've probably heard the story. And we were going to meet Swami Muktananda in Delhi to do an all night Shiva chant for Shivaratri. Um, and um, as we were going through Allahabad, one of the places on the way. We, um, and Rondas, of course, had written and be here now about there's no point in ever trying to find Maharaji because your guru finds you and he moves around all the time and there's, um, just appreciate that he exists, but you don't have to be with him. So, and I had just, Goanka had been firm about, um, of course, at that time in India, there were, all kinds of gurus and uh, most families had a guru and many of them didn't weren't really that good at helping people advance spiritually mm -hmm. so um he he and this is the southern buddhist message anyhow you don't need a guru all you need is um what's sometimes called a spiritual friend or teacher who is a little ahead of you on the path and can teach you the practice because everything will be revealed through the practice. Hmm. And it certainly seemed that way after practicing for those months. Um, it seemed like I was learning so much and I didn't feel like I did. I needed a teacher to teach me how to do it um, and to answer questions. But uh, I didn't feel like I, I needed to grow. I didn't. Uh, and of course, in the in the West, so it never occurred to me that I would want a guru. So um, the we were driving through Allahabad. We were passing a Hanuman temple, and Ramesh, I think, looked out the window and said, "There's Maharaji." No, <laughs> the bus came to a screeching halt, and um, everybody piled out of the bus, and it was each in their own way had amazing experiences. And I was one of the last out. And I had just read the part in 
be here now about Maharaji. And I was looking at his picture and having these thoughts about, you know, how amazing what that such a being could exist. Um, but, you know, I don't need to meet him. It's great that Ramdas did. And then there he was. <laughs> I was one of the last, and I kind of walked down the stairs of the bus, and I looked at him. And in one look, I got that all these tiny openings that I'd had, these glimpses of truth, glimpses of the way things are, glimpses of how, how much more there was than I had ever guessed hmm. to being in this mind and body and awareness. And I looked at Maharaji and in that moment, he seemed, and I think was, uh, the embodiment of the fulfillment of all those things I had had tiny glimpses of. Hmm. He was just fully there and and he just beamed love. It was amazing. It was just, I, look, I, I took one look at him, and I never thought I'd bow to a teacher. And I was full down on the ground. <laughs> and I don't know, you know, it was so, seemed so unlikely, and it was so real. And um, I got up and looked at him, and felt that love that he was able to give us. And then, you know, as we say, the rest is history. My life changed in that moment. And um, then we went to, then there's that story that he had told the uh, family he was staying with that he was bringing 18 people for lunch. And there were 18 of us and we got there and they were ready for us and they served us this fabulous lunch. And he was, the devotee was, the daughter was an a, um, economics professor at um, University of Allahabad. Hmm. And, um, so, you know. So uh, this is again, this, so, so you had this, um, you went on this beautiful painting of this first chapter. <laughs> then you have this deep, uh, study of the mind basically in your in your meditation courses so then what was your relationship to your mind in that moment did you <laughs> i don't remember <laughs> i think in that moment mm. i was um there were it was as as the Zen folks say no mind, you know, mm. a heart. If if there was mind, it was this realization that that as humans we can be so much more than I had ever glimpsed, ever even thought of. Mm. And, um, and that possibility, just you know, even I mean, I had the great, you know privilege of being with Maharaji a lot after that but you know if I hadn't been just knowing that that's possible completely changed everything for me and did it make it as aspirational or did it just did it uh, feel um just that it is it's part of this no mind it just is um, was it awe and wonder like, a, like you would look at like the Grand Canyon or, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like looking at the Grand Canyon after, you know, living in the city, you know? <laughs> oh my God. Who knew? <laughs> yeah. That's, but that's a really good one. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah. It just, I knew then that I didn't know. And that, and that made, it opened up such possibilities. So whatever I did after that, I mean, I, I was inspired to really listen deeply for what it is I was supposed to be doing at each stage. But also I knew that, um, you know, my, my, I could project forward, oh, I'm going to do this and this is going to be the outcome. But I knew that I didn't really know. 
I didn't know what could come of it, whatever it was. And I think that that, honestly, now that you're sharing that, if there's anything to be envious of in those that that actually got to meet Maharaji in person is that that knowing that you didn't know, that complete yanking out of the rug, that, that experience, I was saying that that's the growth edge of my sadhana in my relationship with Maharaji. That's the working of my mind that, um, you know, I have experience after experience of understanding that, but it's a coming to versus a like, <laughs> now I'm, I'm maybe, you know, other people have that experience too with him, you know, out of body, but I feel like what you just described of that coming off the bus moment you know, is something profound. Yeah. You know? And there's so much gratitude for the sharing of the story and the, and the, yeah. and the you know, because I get the transmission of that feeling too, just in your sharing of it. And... Um, you know that not knowing is so important. It's... I was recently in a conversation with someone who's more fundamentalist. And that's kind of the definition because of fundamentalism that I know what I know. And um, I, I know it's right. I know it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know who's right and who's wrong. And there's no, there's no changing that. You know, which is different from being in touch with the truth. Of course, the truth is always emerging. It's not, but it's not to say that some things aren't right and wrong. But but, um, there is that uh, being fixed in the thinking that the way you see it is the way. And um, there's no possibility for inquiry um, there. So that's the great gift is is having that understanding that you don't know, and yet you listen for um, you know you listen for those directions of and grounded in what you know so far to be true. So it's um, you know it's complex <laughs> and simple. Yeah. So I want to just switch gears a little bit to, to your, your new book with, with Ramdas that's going to be out this fall. For the listeners, there's a, a book calling, called Walking Each Other Home, Conversations on Love and Dying that Ramdas and Mirabai have been working on and are going to share with us all this fall. But I really actually <laughs> wanted to just dive into this, the very first sentence of the introduction that you wrote. This is a book about loving and dying and friendship. Can you tell me about that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, because you know, it's like it's so, it's so, is it to me that's the sentence kind of of the whole flow of that story, you know, that with the knees touching in the room in in Bogaya. Yeah. Yeah, well, hmm. well, I'll tell you that that one day I was in Maui visiting Ramdas, and he said, kind of out of the blue, he said, "I want you to write my last book with me." Uh, we had written a book together before years ago. He said, "I want you to write my last book with me," and I said. Of course, you know, my life is completely full and I had no idea what <laughs> he, what the book was going to be about or, you know, how long it would take. I said, of course. <laughs> and then I said, what's it about? And he said, um, it's about dying. And then he said, this time we have a real deadline. 
Okay. <laughs> and that was true at many levels. So, um, so then he, you know, expressed that he um, wanted to, although he's been talking about dying since he, since be here now, um, it's all there, even in that first book and, and in the talks he gave before that. I mean, the, the actual truth of it is there. Yeah. But of course, when you lead a life, you live, you live into those truths that you know in a, at a certain level, at a certain point. And that's what he's been doing all this time. And of course, having gone through the stroke 20 years ago, um, he, uh, was, he had to start looking uh, more closely at what it means to die or to almost die or to lose so much. Um, and so he said, you know, there are things I want to say about dying now, um, but as you know, he has aphasia, and so he can't do it by way of, you know, a like clearly articulated, spontaneous lecture like he used to. Right. Um, so uh, he said, I want to write it together. I want your voice too. Um, and I thought, this, this is why I said, of course, right away, because uh, I believe in the, I mean, I have experienced the way in which uh, understanding truth can come forward out of dialogue at, among friends. If you're sitting with someone you really trust, and you're talking about the things that really matter to you, that, I mean, even right now, mm. not even right now, but that's what these podcasts are about, you know? Mm. They're, they're dialogues, they're conversations, and, and, and understandings come forward that, um, and sharing comes forward that wouldn't have if there wasn't another person you were talking to. Right. Um, mm. and, and I do believe that, in particular, that women's wisdom has traditionally come forward that way, and much of it. And um, so that's what, and that's what's required for, you know, a, a, a conversation that's resting in what matters in the truth is is friendship, you know, and and a spiritual friendship in the sense that. You know, you might disagree on lots of things about in the rest of your life, what you like to do, who your friends are, whatever. But um, that together you are trying to, you know, discover the meaning of us being here, meaning of being human. For us, the, 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 what it was that Maharaji was actually saying to us when, uh, when he said these short phrases. Um, what's the best way to live out that truth? Um, so, and of course we were talking about dying, but the, as Ramana would say, if you want to learn how to die, you have to learn how to live. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing you need to learn about living is how to be how to be more loving, how to become love, and of course, love is at the heart of friendship. So it's mm. it is all intertwined. Is, is there the is answer? there some reason? Yeah, that's beautiful. Is there some reason that you were the friend that he wanted to reflect this with? I like that you're saying that that through conversation and in that reflection of the other is is part of how we draw out truth. I mean, that's kind of bhakti yoga in essence too, right? And the loving of the other, seeing mm -hmm. God in the other. Is there some reason why? What what was the? I don't know. Your friendship that drew that out, yeah. Except we trust each other. We've been through a lot together. And so it's not a superficial relationship. He, we know 
he knows that I utterly trust him and he trusts me. And, and we also have a good time together. We like sitting around and talking and laughing. And, um, and we, we know that we both believe that this is an important book to get out there. We had, in the last few years, been through the deaths of you know, several close friends and have, have talked about that. Uh, I'd written a little about it and read that to him before I knew he was interested in writing a book. I mean, he could have done it with a number of other people. He has a number of close, you know, trusting relationships. But uh, I don't know, maybe because I was just there. (laughs) (laughs) As we say, we don't know. (laughs) Right, right. It's the mystery. But to highlight your willingness to to say yes to that and engage, and that's part of that the love and the friendship part and the dying part. And and um, last year in Maui in May, I wrote down in my notebook during the retreat. Uh, Ramdas said, "Dying and sadhana are the same thing." Yeah, <laughs> and I've been working with that for for some yeah. time. Yeah. And yeah. I do know when I, um, well, I was on private retreat with him uh, in uh, 2015 and he was in the hospital during that time. And um, my, at that time, my father turned 70 and I sent my father a copy of the book still here. Mm-hmm. And I was with Ramdas during, uh, during my father's birthday. And um, I told him I had sent him that book and Ramdas was like, Pfft. I wrote that book when I was a young person, you know, <laughs> pre-stroke. He's like, I have a lot of other things to say about that now. So yeah. I guess yeah. this was in the, in the works then, but. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I, I learned so much about dying from, from doing this. We did the book by just sitting in his room day after day. I mean, I went back and forth to Maui and each time I'd go, we'd sit in his room maybe, you know, half a dozen times and have these conversations and then I'd take them home and uh, put them in a written form. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, but I, you know, I had done lots of practice and I'm also, well, I always said, I'm getting old. But (laughs) my partner said, well, I got off the plane one time and he was driving me home and I said, I'm so tired. You know, I don't know if I can keep on doing all these trips. I'm really getting old. And, and EJ said, Mirabai, you are not getting old. You are old. It's <laughs> 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 a great moment. <laughs> I realized there had been a little denial there. So um, <laughs> anyhow, um, but I... Um, of course, you know, I hadn't done all the work around, hmm. uh, you know, being, being free with dying. And um, so as we began these talks, um, it wasn't just a process of gathering information to put into a book for either of us, that by being so, mm, uh, you know, I don't know, bringing death into the center of the conversation and into the room with this commitment to explore everything we know and don't know about it, it took us both through um, pretty many changes about it. Mm. Um, and um, because with Ramdas, we got down to the level of, you know, how, where he wants to be when he's dying, who he wants to be around, mm. where he wants his ashes to go. Mm. And, um, uh, so, you know, brought up lots of, uh, it was good, but it was a good process because it wasn't, that's why I know that, you know, it's good for people to bring, um, awareness of death into their lives so that you can begin to kind of let go of your fear, bring your fear close to you and let it go. Uh, see what's in there. See if you have you know, regrets or, uh, you know, things you haven't forgiven or just 
terror around losing your body and your mind, all of it, you know, it's so good to let go of it before you have to die because it makes your life so much uh, lighter and, and uh, you're, you're just like more open to whatever comes, letting go of that, you know, of course, you're helping yourself be healthy and strong all the time, but you're letting go of that, like, guard of fear, you know, mm. that something might happen and you'll die, you know. Mm. You, you're just braver in leading your life. Mm. I love that, yeah, being brave and meeting your life. And that isn't really relevant to age. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, well, honestly, I want to go deeper into the book, but I kind of want to do that at a separate time because I feel like yeah. we got through a lot here and that's just like a little teaser. And since this is coming out in the fall, maybe you and I can talk again um, in the fall and we can speak more in depth on the, on the contents of that, of the book but I wanted to just like connect with you and bring you into the podcast and introduce you to people that are listening and, you know, give a little depth of the story and, and um, selfishly connect with you myself one-on-one to be, to be with you and know, and know more of, um, of your tale. And I just love, um, I love the whole thing and I love that this this chapter right now is coming with this book and your and your collaboration with the mind and with the intellect and with the word and the and the writing and the sharing of that out um you know with the teacher with the spiritual friend just a step ahead you know like you said so I'll offer you the question that I ask all of the guests which is if you had a specific piece of advice to offer women and girls on oh. the spiritual path, mm. you know, having walked this journey, like you said, in a different time, it, you know, and then coming around to this moment and. Mm-hmm. I think when I look back, I think the most important thing is to learn to trust yourself and to do that you need to give yourself time take care of yourself so that you can hear what's being called what's being asked from within and but trust yourself i think that you know culturally it's been um there have been a lot of factors that have led to women not always fully trusting themselves. And, uh, but I think, well, I know that it's key and, um, yeah, trust yourself and take your place wherever you are in, in a loving, open way, knowing that you don't know everything, but being there in a loving way will um you know will help you hear what it is that you're supposed to be uh doing and knowing and how to go forward and then trust that yeah i think that sounds lovely i love that fe- the feeling yeah. of the calling being able to trust you yourself help women and younger than you are. and help women younger than you are Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes women older than you are. <laughs> well, I think that that it was a lovely um a lovely introduction and um I really got so much from hearing you tell your experience. And um I'm so appreciative of your continued commitment to sharing what you learned and and sharing your your own personal transformation and being present to um, all of us that are are behind you on the path. 
Great. Well, I loved it. I love doing this with you, and I'd be happy to do another one later. Fantastic. It's really fun. I mean, I got in late last night, and I thought, oh, God, I'm just going to be so sleepy and dopey tomorrow. And maybe that's been true, but I've enjoyed it. No, it was really good, Mirabai, and I really, really enjoyed it, too. And so, yeah, we'll plan to do it again. Okay, in the fall and we'll get this out and because i did i mean because the book is great so <laughs> i definitely want to dig into that deeper but i feel like this was important too and um and um i just can't wait to get to spend time with you in person and and connect more deeply at the winter retreat i plan to be yeah good yeah. i'll be there so, so we'll do that and okay. um otherwise i'll stay in touch with you here yeah or we could see each other in new york sometime Oh, yeah. Let's stay in touch that then, too. Yeah, I'll be around here. Good. Okay. All right. So much love to you, Mirabai. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you get some rest in before you jump on the plane again. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Have a great day. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.